0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carlos Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, everyone. We're really glad that you're here this morning, and we'll uh, expect the second half of our church in about 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah, so we're glad you're here, and uh, hi to our online audience. I'm sure it's much larger even this week, with many of you traveling. We want to say a huge hey to you, whether you're watching or listening online. Well, we're still uh, in our series, the book of Romans, back to basics. We're coming near the end. Uh, we're in chapter 13 today. And so if you want to navigate uh, to 13 or turn to 13, we'd love you to do that this morning and, and we'll, we'll begin. It's interesting in a culture because there are rhythms in our culture. We're experiencing one today. It's spring forward today, it's the beginning of March break. But another huge thing is about to take place to our whole nation. It's the most wonderful time of year, tax season. Yeah, someone said, "Woo! Wow!" I don't know. They may be an accountant. I don't know. (laughs) Tax season is um, something we all face, every one of us, and it's an interesting experience, especially as you grow older. As I was preparing to preach this week, I discovered a major survey done. It's done south of the border, but I think it applies. The IRS was interested in finding out people's mentalities and practices around tax season. And this is what they found. They found that one out of five people admitted to underestimating their income. They lied about their income. One out of ten overestimated the deductions they had been given that year. One out of six people actually claimed dependence that did not exist or changed people's status so they got a better tax break. Fifty percent of people said outright that if they could get away with cheating on their taxes, they believed not only they would do it, but everyone else would cheat too. Psychologists who did a major study in this also found out that the more tax evaders, that a person is around, the more likely you are to cheat. I was thinking this week, what a fantastic week to preach. Time change, tax season, and March break. But it's interesting, I named this sermon this morning, Worshiping God in Unexpected and Uncomfortable Places. Because what we're about to discover this morning is that Paul is about to teach us how to worship even in tax season. Paul in chapter 12 told us very clearly to love each other, how to respond to destructive enemies, and now is going to teach us how to interact with the government, with unsaved neighbors, and how to truly be light in a very dark world. But before we get into the passage today, and it will become clear very quickly why I started with that survey, let's do some history. Because when we understand the history behind Romans 13, this passage will become more powerful and the call on this community even more radical. The Emperor Claudius had just expelled every single Jew from Rome because a dispute actually began to happen between this community within themselves about Jesus. This is recorded in secular history and also referred to in the book of Acts. After a period of time, they were all allowed to come back, but it was tense to say the least. After the death of Claudius, then Paul begins to write the book we're in, Romans. And this is being written in the middle of a man's uh, a reign of Nero, a man who is slowly devolving into insanity and is about to, in the most creative and horrific way, murder thousands of Christians just because they're Christians. It was a tough place to be in the church in Rome. There was a growing anti-Jewish and anti-Christian sentiment, and remember the Jewish community and the Christian community at this point are not separated. It's growing at a rapid pace. Paul also realizes that he needs to address how Christians interact, interact with the government because in Jerusalem there's still a very deep anti-Roman zealot mentality which also could influence the church. But there's another wrong attitude that's growing at the exact same time. Paul also needs to address something very quickly. That is, some Christians started thinking, well, I'm a Christian. Jesus is going to come back real soon, and he's going to make everything right. So why get involved with the government at all or civic affairs? It's a waste of time, and honestly, it will probably just lead me to sin. So let's just run away from it all and let God burn it all in the end. But Paul is not going to allow us to go here. He's about to charge us as Christians to what many now call horizontal grace. Since God has given us grace and mercy and kindness, we not only have to do this with each other, we also need to do this with those that run the land. Responsible, hear this, responsible citizenship is at the heart of, and here's the word, Christian worship. Paul commands the Christians in Rome, living under Nero with these words, and since this is the Word of God, He, the living God, tells us the same this morning. Romans 13.1 Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by who? God. Let everyone. He's basically saying, okay, everybody. If you're a Christian, if you have really named the name of Jesus as Savior and Lord, then you must be subject. That is, you need to submit. Stand underneath the government. Subject is a military term of a voluntary deference to the wishes of another. God's word says right here in black and white, God has established the idea of government and even the government that's ruling our land right now. Though God remains fully in control, they are given limited amounts of autonomy. Now, they may be good governments or bad governments, but God always uses them to accomplish His purpose. As one person said, after God created the world, He filled it, He organized it, and gave purpose to each created thing. When governments establish law and prosecute justice, they honor His created order, even when they don't do it perfectly. However, anarchy is bad for everybody. Governments serve the purpose of God whether they mean to or not. They form and thrive by His permission and they will cease to exist when He's done with them. So here's the point. As a Christian, if you are one, we are commanded to obey the law remain productive, pay our taxes, stop at red lights, don't steal, don't rob banks, don't murder, don't invade someone else's privacy. Now, all of these things are good because they're called the common good, but it's not enough for us. See, this is about worship for us as Christians. And notice the power of the statement, resisting the government is fighting against God's plan and God's given authority. Now, few passages in the New Testament have been misused, like this one. This is not teaching blind devotion to a government. Many of the churches during the reign of Hitler used this passage to teach that no one could ever stand up or should not stand up against the government. Actually, many pastors stood in pulpits just like this and declared that Hitler was God's gift to the world. And of course, we all realize he was the devil's gift to the world. So what do we really understand? Are we going to get to the question today when it's not okay to obey the government? We are. But before we always go to the exception, let me say to us, highly democratic, individually right, motivated people, let this sink in this morning. It is rarely preached now in churches. Our worship is connected to your thoughts and your actions towards those that have authority over all of us. How's your worship life feeling now? Verse 2, "...consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do will bring judgment on themselves." Civil obedience allows us to fear God, really, and not people. There there are two reasons why we need to obey. Number one, it allows us to worship. It honors God. It pleases God because this is how he set up the world. Second, it allows us to serve God freely. If we keep disobeying the law, then we get fines, and then a bad reputation, and then many of us, if we really did it really well, we'd end up in a place called prison, which kills our testimony and removes the space and time for any of us to serve God. God. When you break the law, it brings something called bondage. Richard Halverson, the former chaplain to the United States Senate, wrote these words. To be sure, people will abuse and misuse the institution of the state. People, because of sin, have abused and misused every institution in history. And then he says, and I remind you, including the church. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or the idea should be forsaken. It simply means that people are sinners and rebels in God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, he says, governments are needed to maintain order until Jesus returns and makes all things right. Human government is better than anarchy, and the Christian must recognize, this is tough for us, the divine right of the state. Verse 3, for rulers who hold no terror, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. As a general rule, and it's a general rule only, just obey and things will go well with you. If you break the law, knowingly or not, at the end of the day, you may be held accountable. And if you do it intentionally, you will always be looking over your back. If you obey, he's saying you have nothing to fear. General rule. For the one in authority, verse 4, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for the rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of wrath to bring punishment on wrongdoers. The sword was the symbol of Roman judicial power. God has given the authority of law and consequence to governments. Now notice something here this morning, and it's important. God calls the government God's servants. Now, this is really important because this is the same word in the New Testament used uh, for, the, it's the word deacons, for ministers. It's the same word in the Old Testament used for priests who serve before the living God actually in the temple. It reminds us all this morning that God has a very high view of those that serve us in governmental roles. It also reminds those serving all of us that they are supposed to serve us like a deacon would or a priest would on our behalf for our good. Then he says in verse 5, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but as a matter of conscience. I mean, this is the best summary so far. We don't just obey the law as Christians because we don't want to get in trouble or lose time or reputation or money. We obey as Christians, I keep emphasizing that, as a matter of conscience. That is, this is God's will. And we love God, and we want to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so we now choose to do this as an act of worship. Now, that's all ethereal. But Paul brings it home right here. He stops right now. He he makes the rubber hit the road, and he calls us to worship in this most unexpected of places. Our taxes. That's right, taxes. And I want to say this morning, I did not plan this series a year ago, so this would coincide with the coming tax season. I didn't. So obviously God wants to say something to us. Listen to the word of God clearly. This is why you pay taxes, fellow Christians, for the authorities are God's servant and have given their full time to governing. Now lots of us here don't want to pay taxes because we don't like how the government uses them or we don't believe they should have them. You can fill in the blank of your whole view on taxes and the government. But I guarantee you the majority of us as Christians don't have the same battle with a government about taxes that Christians did 2,000 years ago. Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago struggled with this because it was giving to a pagan government. It was not about greed. It was an issue of worship to them, an issue of holiness to them, because the state and religion was not divided. Jews thought by paying taxes to Caesar, they were actually stealing God's money and giving it to an emperor who called himself what? God. This was the same issue that Jesus had to deal with. Some religious leaders tried trapping him as usual, and they brought a coin out. You remember the story, maybe? And he says, well, who do we give to? And his response was profound. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. This, as one wrote in this single sentence... God establishes the validity of human government while at the same time showing its limits. Caesar had his image on certain things, and they rightly belonged to him. There is a proper dominion and function for human government. However, he says, God has stamped his own image somewhere else. On people, their intellect, their will, their soul. This this bears the divine stamp. Thus, people give outward things to Caesar, but the inner person belongs to God. Jesus was saying this. The coin is from the mint of the Roman Empire, but you, my friends, you are God's mint. The coin's use is determined by its likeness, and your use is determined by the likeness you bear. Jesus' single statement probably is the most important political statement ever made in political history, because it defines our role, God's role, and the government's role. Ray Stedman, who's done a lot of thinking about this, I was reading him this week, and I love when he wrote these words. Listen to them carefully. He says, listen, everyone, you have a right, of course, as does everybody, to protest injustice or correct abuse, but don't be forever grumbling as a Christian about taxes that you have to pay. He said, I had to learn this lesson myself the hard way. The first time I had to pay income tax was not long ago because I didn't pay taxes for years, but gradually, because of life, it caught up with me and I finally had to pay. By the way, he wasn't breaking the law. He made so little money that he didn't have to pay taxes. He says, I remember how resentful I was about it. In fact, I sent my tax form in and addressed it, this is in the States, to the Infernal Revenue Service. He said, they never answered, but they gladly took my money. The next year, I improved my attitude when I wrote and called them the Eternal Revenue Service. But it's this last line that's important for us. He says, but I've repented from all of those sins. And now I hope as a Christian to pay my taxes cheerfully. cheerfully. Verse seven, give to everyone what you owe them. If it's taxes, pay taxes. If it's revenue, then revenue. If it's respect, then respect. If it's honor, then honor. We are called to fulfill the requirements of good citizenship, and by doing this, we just might create the opportunity to share the good news with greater freedom with others. Respect and honor are so key when we deal with anyone over us. As one preached, as Christians, we may actually deplore the politics of a particular person in the office. We may be repelled by his or her scandalous conduct, but this never, ever allows us to disrespect the office they hold. How many times have we heard pastors and so-called Christian leaders slam and spit on the government and think they're doing it all in the name of Jesus? Paul comes and says, you're not worshiping at all. You're just being a jerk. Paul continues thinking this through, but before we get to him, I was remembering that one time in our history we had dealt with this, and I was thinking it through, and I remembered Peter wrote like this too. Peter is uh, penning First and Second Peter as Nero is becoming more insane. He knows that persecution is coming. Mur- uh, Peter will end up being murdered, by the way. And listen to the words found in 1 Peter 2.13. He says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake. To every human authority, whether it's to the emperor, Nero, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of God, fear God, honor the emperor. This is tough for us. but The word of God is telling us that part of our worship that goes way beyond singing on a Sunday morning is doing this and doing it, and that's the key word, cheerfully. Let's not forget, though, what the passage is not teaching us. Paul is not naive about government abuse and power. If there is anyone who's been abused by the government, read Paul's story multiple times. He knows even that behind many of the powers and rulers are actually spiritual forces that are hostile and hate God. So can we ever disagree with the government? Can we ever choose rightly not to obey? Yes forget don't forget that this is only one passage among many. There are rare occasions when we will have but no choice to say to the government, we cannot obey. Now, don't forget either that Paul never shares his view on what type of government is best, including democracy. He never ever supports democracy as a worldview, nor does he ever tell us what to do in the middle of revolution. But we can glean from Scripture three times when we can overtly disobey the government in good Christian conscience. So, if you're a note taker, here they are. The first one is this when the government tells us implicitly or explicitly to violate a command of God. In Acts 4 and 5, Peter and others were told that they could no longer preach or teach in the name of Jesus. Peter's response was, We must obey God rather than people. The command of God always takes precedent. If it was illegal tomorrow in Canada to preach from the Bible, we'd do it anyways. If it was illegal to take communion or do small groups or sing together, we'd just break the law. The second one is this. If we are told as Christians to commit an immoral or unethical act, if we are told by those above us, whether it's our bosses at work or in a government, to lie, to kill, to affirm things God has said no to, we just cannot do it. Not only have Christians in China faced the difficult difficult experience of working with a communist government, and many of them in certain provinces have been arrested for doing things we take normally, but their larger challenge is the one-child policy. We hold life high as Christians, but you're only allowed to have one child, and if you have more than one, you have to have an abortion. Christians at that moment would have to say, no, we'll do it illegally, and we'll do it in secret. In India, many, many times... Though it's not a formal governmental rule, actually it's outlined now. Many people kill girls because they want boys. Christians have to stand up and say, No, we will not do that. That violates the heart and law of God. The third time we have permission is when something goes against Christian conscience, informed by Scripture and the Spirit of God. Now, this is difficult for us because not all of us agree with each other on the gray areas in Scripture. Some Christians could never ever work on nuclear weapons. Others could never work for a corporation that maybe six branches over does something that's not totally correct. Uh, War and pacifism is a great example. Some Christians would say there must be a time where we need to take up arms and defend the weak or remove an immoral government. And others will say no, Jesus teaches us never to do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany was faced with this very issue and he and his fellow pastor struggled and in the end he was one of the conspirators to murder Hitler. He said it's the lesser of two evils. If I sin I will sin less. Christians disagree. One said it is our brothers and sisters living elsewhere who face these conflicts with particular intensity for instance, believers living in countries ruled by Islamic governments face difficulties and conflicts between God's will and the decree of their rulers. How should they decide to act on these issues? Those of us not facing these choices and their consequences should be very, very quiet. And we are not in a position to pontificate from a distance. Wouldn't you say amen to that? Yeah. We have three times when we can say no. No when we are explicitly told to not preach the gospel or follow through on our faith, when we are told to do things that we know God has said are wrong, and when individually or as a small group or a family, informed by the Spirit and also by Scripture and conscience, we just say, for us, we cannot do this. Now, from taxes and the government, Paul understands he still needs to get to the deeper issue. He understands, of course, things still are relational, and so he now talks about how we interact with neighbors and coworkers and unsafe family. He said, verse 8, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt of love for one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Many point out and use this verse inappropriately. They say, see, John, you can't borrow money. You cannot carry a credit card or credit card loans or, or mortgages. It's all sinful. That's not what's being taught here. Do not use Scripture for your own bias. The idea here is not allowing debt to become a lifestyle where you become in bondage. Don't default on a loan. As another said, be a person of honor. Fulfill your obligations as a Christian. Don't make, I love this, don't make creditors track you down. You track them down. Be completely honest and forthright. Pursue arrangements to pay off what you owe. And if someone holds a particular position that is due respect, give it to them with enthusiasm. And so the real call here, Paul says, is don't be a person marked by scandal and debt and hiding. Be a person who has integrity even in the tough times. And then Paul says, but get to the real debt issue. And what's that? It's love. As one said, I need to show them love. Why? Because I have a great and wonderful debt to pay because I've been loved so much. That's why Paul turns to the second half of the Ten Commandments. He, did, he, he, he wants us to get to the heart of God. We did a whole series of this on this in September 09, which you can listen to. The law of God is not just the very character of God. The Ten Commandments is the vision of how God wants the whole created universe to work. It's true love. And he uses the 7th, the 6th, the 8th, and the 10th Commandment. He says, you shall not commit adultery. Don't murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other commandments there will be, they're all summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you really love God and others, you would never encourage or commit adultery. If you really love God and others, you would never commit murder physically or hate in your heart. You would never steal by word or deed. You would not live a life that is motivated always by what you don't have physically, emotionally, mentally, sexually, spiritually, financially, job-wise, fill in the blank. This is how we, in a very cold, uncaring, scary, me-centered world, can be really different as Christians. Right here. Notice Paul says that therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. A loving God attitude moves us to obey the law, but not only that, if we are truly filled with God's love, we will naturally do these laws. Well, Paul brings home everything that God expects with the idea of time. He simply is about to say to all of us, we're living in the last days, the days are short, Jesus is coming, so we need to live right because we're about to face him. He says, and do this, verse 11, understanding the present time. There's two words for time. One of them is chronos, where we get our word calendar from or chronology from. The other one is kairos. It's about a specific fixed appointed season. It's a special time, a certain period or quality of time. And what Paul is saying is, he's using the second one, we are living in a very unique period in human history. We are followers of God through Jesus in the middle of what the Bible calls the last days. We have been in the last days since Jesus' birth. And the time is short. That's why he says continuing, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Jesus is now, clo- now closer to coming when all things will may- be made right. So the question that Paul gives us this morning is this. Do you really live your life Like you're really going to face the living Lord Jesus Christ, even today. Remember, most things at this moment that we love or care about or worry about or fret about will have no weight when we see him face to face. Our Christian ethic, our love, our obedience, our confidence is always grounded and motivated by Jesus' coming. If you don't live your life like Jesus is really returning, you will fall into sin very quickly. That's why Paul says in verse 13, let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Carousing and drunkenness comes from the idea of a wild nighttime party and festival in the honor of a guy named Bacchus, the Greek god of wine, which started publicly in the streets with drinking all sorts of drinks and ended up with all sorts of sex with all sorts of people. Now, nothing is new under the sun, Our neighborhoods are full of this, even in the suburbs. And the internet has brought this even more into our home, both live and unlive. is done in secret or in public is shameful before God, but now is normal and expected and promoted in our culture. You know what Paul says to us and God says? We cannot be marked by that lifestyle anymore. Many of us sitting in here and watching online, this was us. Let's be honest, no church games here. This was us for years. But now we've met the living Lord Jesus Christ, and that's not us anymore. Then he says, and sexual immorality, it's got to go. I learned this this week. Sexual immorality just means bed. I went, hmm, all right. He's talking about wanton access to treat God's sexual norms with contempt. The Christian who wants to love must understand that you really cannot love people and live a life only for sex. Sex must be defined by God's word, not by us, culture, feelings, history, or our view on biology. It is found in the word of God. He says, what we have done for years is no longer who we are. He says, dissension and jealousy too is dangerous, infighting with zeal, tearing the community apart, but it goes deeper. One described it this way, someone who cannot stand being surpassed by others and begrudges others' success and their position. Tragically, he writes, many believers act as if it is their holy duty to keep other people in place. Such behavior just cannot exist. That's why Paul says, rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Rather, it's an interesting word. It's not a neutral word. It's reserved for stark contrast. We must, in an absolute, unequivocal way, obey Jesus and not darkness. It takes forethought and planning to put on Jesus Christ. And don't forget who he is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. We bow to his ideas, his commands, his lordship. He's either king over all or he's not king at all. Ray Stedman, again, helped me when he wrote these words. When I get up in the morning... And I put on clothes. I intend them to be part of me all day long. To go where I go and do what I do. I went, well, that's very, that's good. They cover me. And they make me hopefully presentable to others. That is the real purpose of clothing. In the same way, the apostle is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning. Make him part of your life that day. Intend that he actually goes with you everywhere you go. And that he acts through you in everything you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Jesus Christ. Everyone know why no one preaches out of Romans 13 anymore? Worshiping God in unexpected and uncomfortable places. Sociologists tell us time and time again that they cannot see the difference in behavior and attitude and action between evangelical Christians and those that do not know God at all. It's just, it's every study says it. And I would challenge myself and us and you watching and listening online to understand this. Real spiritual worship and life change happens in the boring places of life like taxes. You want to know what the take-home is for us as a community this week? Because remember, we're all here about honoring God and following after Him and because He's loved us so much that we want to love others. Here it is. Number one, respect and obey the government as worship. Pay your taxes and do it joyfully. Watch your language about how you talk about those around you and above you. Obey the law. Do it as worship to God. Do it in this unexpected place. Don't just do it for the common good or because it just protects you. It's deeper than that. If taxes, then pay them. If revenue, pay it back. If honor, then give people honor. When you make out your tax income, the stuff this year, remember, it's better to give than deceive. Amen? Because I thought we were people of light not darkness. Let's respect the government. Let's pay our taxes, and when you're paying it out, if you do, say, Jesus, I'm worshiping you right now, and worship is painful. Second thing, debt thinking. It's a new way of living. Let us cultivate a new sense of debt, not debt financially all the time, but a debt where we continually live our life in a different way, where we actually begin to go I've been given so much love and so much grace and eternal life. I want to live out of that mentality that I have a debt to God that I'd love to share with others called love. Another thing to think about is this. Take deeds of darkness and put them off. Let us consciously put off the deeds of darkness. One person said, I've encouraged my own adult children and I encourage myself also to ask these questions when I'm faced with anything I'm wondering about. Question one, can I do this? Are Christians allowed to even do this? If the answer is no, run. Question two Should I do this? Does this activity I'm about to do glorify God and honor the Lord? And here it is Whom I represent to others? Most of the time, when we're thinking about obeying God and worship and how far is too far, we keep thinking about us and Jesus. And no, no, it's not just about us, we actually represent Him. When we say I'm a Christian, everyone goes, I'm going to watch you now. The point Paul is saying is, put off deeds of darkness. If you know what you're about to do or you are doing is absolutely clearly sinful, repent of it, ask for the power of God to stop it, get community help and move on. If you are not sure, ask yourself the question, Spirit of God, what do you say to me? Community, what do you say to me? Small group, what do you say to me? Have informed and make a decision. Some will be able to say yes, some will be able to say no. But the point is, you've worked it out and you've thought about it. Here's the last thing I give you today out of Romans 13 and myself. Jesus is really coming back. Really. He is really going to come back. He is going to split the sky, end history. There's going to be a big, great white throne judgment. And all of us, even as Christians, are going to have a personal face-to-face chat about this thing called our life. Paul and all the other leaders in our movement continually reminded themselves that they will give an account. 2 Corinthians 5, one of the verses we have been trying to encourage you to pray for yourself in this church is where Paul says, I want to be away from the body and home with the Lord, but whether here or there, I realize, this is a paraphrase, that I'm going to have to give an account to him For what I've done good and bad in the body. This is not talking about heaven and hell. But we are going to have to give an account. If you do not live your life like Jesus is going to return. And you, he's going to end history. And you're going to give an account. Of course you'll cheat on your taxes. He'll forgive me. Jesus is coming. All the terror we see in our world will end. He will make all things right, but our ethic, our obedience, our love, the one we sing to, give to, pray, serve in the name of, we're gonna actually be with him, but we're gonna have a conversation about how we've lived our life. Every day when you wake up in the morning, it should be, not in an obsessive way, but in a hopeful hopeful way saying, he may come today, how will I live my life differently? The church needs to be a different place, not a legalistic place. The church needs to be a different place full of life. And the way we do that is by seeing Romans 13 for what it is. Not a bunch of duties for a Christian to do, but acts of love to one who's loved us first. Let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you that your word is so specific and helpful. And it's so easy to read this, Uh, easy to preach this, very difficult. There's a lot going on right now in the room and also in people's homes and computers and on on the go train as people are listening and watching. So my prayer is this. Number one, uh, we again as a church submit to you and your lordship. And we pray over this. Lord, where we individually or communally have disrespected the government, forgive us. Where we have crossed lines, forgive us. Where we have lied, forgive us. Because we thought it was okay or it wasn't okay. Forgive us. Lord, forgive a group of us for stealing from the government and from others. Forgive a group of us for not honoring those in authority above us. Forgive us. Help us to work out the honor thing while people are still doing wrong things. Like, that's difficult, but, but help us, we pray. Lord, we also pray over this stuff that, this morning that we would, um, you would help us uh, live this life with love and have that debt mentality in the right sense. There's a lot of deeds of darkness uh, among us this morning, in me. Things we just crave naturally, even though we've been set free from them. And so, Lord, forgive us for debauchery and sexual immorality. Forgive us for addiction and wild, you know, just wild parties, a debt lifestyle that's way above what we can afford sometimes. Forgive us, Lord, for jealousy, infighting, And we pray that that would be removed. And lastly, um, a simple prayer. Um, I ask for this church that we would live like you actually are going to come back. Um, I think it's been so long in our minds that we just don't think you are sometimes. But you are. So we pray for hope and we pray that our behavior, our worship, would be deeply affected by your return. Help us very practically to follow after Jesus in a very difficult world. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus, because he loves us first. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, cartherscreek.ca.